Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I have to get back into my office. I am upstairs, so now you get to see what it looks like for me to go down my stairs. Woohoo! I should go outside and show you my yard. Oh, take it easy. Careful, careful. Hey, you get a good close-up shot. Close-up shot of my science library, a little bit of it. There we go. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. And then there's a lot of my chess literature. I've got to start doing some more chess videos too, man. Anyway, okay, let's uh let me get this set up. I've got a big night tonight, and I have an enormous amount of materials that I'm going to try to share with you before this gets too difficult for me to do. And some interesting new developments have come about in the last, uh, oh, well, last year, this last year, I'll say. Hey, Debbie Joe, how are you? Burl Bikes, Gail Caps, and Wendy Rowland, Paul Osborne. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Oh, well, thank you, Crystal Christensen. I, I appreciate you appreciating that I'm sharing some knowledge. I am picking up the speed. Uh, I'm picking up the steam. I have, I promise, boatloads of materials I want to share. And so thank you so much for your support and your love and your, your being here, etc. cetera. Um, this is a great group. Uh, this audience is just exceptional, I promise. Uh, yes, we have some smart Alex. Every chat group does. We have some extremely knowledgeable people. Paul Osborne here is extremely powerful with the Joseph Smith Papyri and the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and Geography, which I have not forgot, Paul. I do have the uh, Peninsula of Delmarva coming up in, in some podcasts, I promise. So, uh I appreciate all of you coming out tonight. I have uh, I have an announcement or two or three or ten that I want to make. Uh, in the last, I believe it was in February, this last February, and this is so hard for me to believe because the time just flies by. Uh, I presented to the Mormon Esoterica group. A, uh, a lecture on Mithraism. Now, I did produce a podcast of that, and I did upload it as a video. Uh, it, it was recorded on Zoom. The biblical scholar, the world-famous biblical scholar, Dennis R. MacDonald, uh, attended, and he had some wonderful pointers for me. I was very honored to have him there. And uh, we had a, it was a small select group, maybe 11 or 12 of us, a lot of fun stuff, but I shared some ideas on Mithraism. At the end of that presentation, I made a claim about Joseph Smith missing the boat with entheogenic sacrament. And everyone in the group chided me immediately. They said, oh, dude, you're out of date. You, you, you haven't got a clue. Whoa, hold it. You've got, you've got some reading to do. And they turned me on. They said, Joseph Smith did not miss anything. You just are not aware of the new research out. And so I was very eager to jump on this. Well, it's taken me this long. <laughs> Here it is, what, September now. And I'm finally getting around to this fantastic subject. 
not as a means of denigrating Joseph Smith by any measure, not to insult Joseph Smith by any measure. Now, I understand today's Mormonism and many of the apologists and a lot of the scholars will not like this podcast if they bother to listen to it, which I think they should, but that's my bias. It doesn't bother me if they choose not to. It's all good. Maybe some of you can share, if you know Mormon apologists and have Mormon friends, you can tell them, hey, the backyard professor is talking about this subject, and it's really a good subject. I will produce many videos, podcasts on this subject. Tonight's basically a quick introduction to this fantastic subject. The Antheogenic Origins of Mormonism, a Working Hypothesis. This was published in the Journal of Psychedelic Studies, 3, number 2, pages 212 to 260, uh, in 2019, brand new material, well, three years old, brand new material, Robert Beckstead, Bryce Blankenagel, Cody Nicone, and Michael Winkleman. Uh, and Don Bradley helped with some of the research and the contextualization of it and so on and so forth. So that is what I want to talk about tonight and give you my context of how I have come into uh, these materials. Now, in the process, first let me tell you a new development this week. As you all know by now, I let it out in a horrific rant, which I perceive to be a gross social injustice being done at BYU, a racist uh, approach, a racist event apparently happened, and I jumped on the bandwagon and I really lambasted not only the Mormon leaders, but the Mormons themselves, especially the students at BYU and the faculty at BYU. I was livid about it, and I let them know it in no uncertain terms. You can watch that video uh, if you would like again. <laughs> or for the first time, where I absolutely let it out. Apparently now, on further investigation, this event has been a molehill blown up into a mountain. It didn't happen as it was at first announced, and so perhaps... There were, well, not perhaps, there were some miscommunications between the press and the the volleyball teams. The women volleyball teams were playing, and uh, there were apparently some racist remarks thrown at the black people, uh, one of the black players, and her mom came unglued and tweeted about it. We don't know if that's accurate. Uh, so far as they can tell now, there was a group of people who were basically in the area of the gentleman who was identified as making those racist slurs, and he was eventually confronted, and he's been evicted from BYU athletic events now. Well, apparently it didn't happen the way I thought it did, so I jumped the gun. I prejudged, uh, and I was at fault, and so I wish here to, in all sincerity, offer an apology for my rant to the Mormon leaders. 
I want to issue an apology to the Mormon church itself. I want to issue an apology, a sincere apology to the BYU students. And I want to apologize for anyone who was offended. I did prejudge hastily based upon historical precedents of former racism in Mormonism. And there still is some issues involved in that I won't get into tonight. But I also saw that the way Mormonism treats minorities has sometimes brought in an enormous amount of friction. The LGBTQ community, for instance, and of course, the male versus female, etc. I'm not going to get into any of that. I jumped the gun and I prejudged and I was very harsh. And for that, for that incident, that misjudgment on my part, I do apologize. Um, now understand, you know very well where I come down on some social issues, and I always will, because I felt there was an injustice performed. Therefore, my judgment was hasty, and I was wrong. I have egg on my face, so take it off. Let's have some scrambled eggs. <laughs> I got bombarded with eggs. However, I will never not stand up for social injustice, just so you understand. So I do want to sincerely get that out of the way. Uh, I understand there are still ongoing investigations. Um, it may be partially where I'm correct. It most, for the most part, apparently it didn't happen the way it was said. And so uh, that's just the way it happened. And so now I want to get on to the next part of my presentation here. I'll man up and say, hey, I was wrong. And uh, nothing to hang my head about, although there are some who want to throw stones at me back and say, yes, you self-judgmental prick and all that jazz. Go right ahead. I probably deserve it. <laughs> Truly, it's all good. I can take it. I've got a thick skin. I used to be a Mormon apologist. Now I am a truth seeker. And so I have retained my thick skin. Now, on to the main subject with which... Uh, I want to focus on tonight, which I believe is an exquisitely fantastic subject. Uh, I can do no more than just, oh, well, thank you, Debbie Joe. That's very kind of you. Um, well, thank you, Elisa. Elisa. Um, I do, too. So, oh, well, Gail, <laughs> you guys are way too kind. All right. Well, anyway, understand one thing. I am going to now provide a very serious disclaimer here. And I need this understood fundamentally at eye level here. In the pursuit of the historic interpretation here of the use of of hallucinogenic mushrooms. They're called entheogens, which means the God within. They, they were apparently, hallucinogenics were apparently used by Joseph Smith. 
I'm going to share the historic evidences, the implications. I'm going to open the idea to you. I in no wise advocate the use of drugs. I want that crystal clear. I am not saying that because Joseph Smith did this, that we all have to do this or ought to do this as well. I am not advocating that. No one in Mormon Discussions, Inc. is supporting advocating this stance. I am alone responsible for the content I'm about to share with you on the historical basis of entheogenic early Mormonism, which I think these gentlemen present a half-decent case for, truly. And there is more work to be done. Uh, I have talked to a few of the authors, and I will pursue some of my further studies simply because I've read materials, and they have too, uh, they did not include all of the materials. Of course, you can't. The subject is gigantic right now. But I have read materials that they haven't, and so we're going to kind of look into some some materials here. Um, from my point of view now, and this is so interesting because, you know, I'm really glad that I'm no longer an apologist because I'm afraid as an apologist, had this been introduced to me, I would have put it away. I would I would have either fought against it or ridiculed it, etc. And I would have missed appreciating a new angle in the life of Joseph Smith and in my understanding of the uh, the way that early Mormonism actually rose so powerfully and so influentially, almost as it were overnight. And how was it that so many tens of thousands came flocking to this brand new sect when there were lots and lots and lots of people in Joseph Smith's era and uh, geographical range who also had visions, they began churches, etc., but they didn't succeed. This particular explanation helps me appreciate on a different angle than I have ever before considered why Joseph Smith did succeed, why early Mormonism made it. And so, what this study did for me, rather than denigrating Joseph Smith, it actually brought out a greater level of appreciation for what he was trying to do. Now, I don't agree with the with all the doctrine. I am one who, and, and I know this is somewhat anomalous. I'm well aware of that. I'll own up to it, yeah, because I'm still working my way through all of this stuff. But I just, I am having trouble now seeing the today's Mormonism having any kind of connection to Joseph Smith's Mormonism. And I'm not going to lie to you. My bias is all in favor of Joseph Smith's. Not that I would join it, however. Not that I accept it. But I think his has the better claim to a genuine authenticity of 
religiosity and spirituality minus some of the ludicrous practices that he brought into, such as polygamy, crap like that, that really, I think he really kind of <laughs> veered off the path pretty bad. And it caused way more problem than it was necessary to. And it just gave absolutely everybody headaches. And, and it caused a lot of division and problem. This particular study is not in an effort to make Joseph Smith a more natural man. Now I can I I'm <laughs> I'm just so not kidding. I can see some apologists reacting that way to this podcast, <laughs> to this video live session. They'll say, yeah, well, the backyard professor, he's just become a dingling. He's an idiot now because now he's trying to bring down the greatness of Joseph Smith down to just being another man. That's not at all what this particular study does. In a really what I would consider an ironic twist, this approach literally elevates Joseph Smith. It broadens him far greater than any of the single interpretations that have been used to try to describe how do we describe this guy? You know, he, he is such an enigma and he's such an anomaly. So far as I can tell, and these guys list this, let me list just a couple of these features here. Uh, they talk about the naturalistic explanations that have been used to try to explain, you know, how do we pigeonhole him? This isn't really even a matter of pigeonholing Joseph Smith. It's just another uh, broadening, from my opinion, and, and I agree, this is just me and, and it's these authors. You can agree and disagree. I'm not here to convert you to this point of view. I, I promise it. It is irrelevant to me whether you accept this or not. I, I could care less. That's not the point of this conversation, <laughs> truly. Some of the naturalistic explanations which they are describing, they say, well, for the sheer number of early Mormon visions and ecstasies, including rational supernaturalism, out-of-body experiences, animal magnetism, or mesmerism. Uh, we've got the prophetic charisma explanation to try to figure out this guy, Joseph Smith. We have dissociation secondary to childhood trauma. Uh, we have this enthusiasm associated with the second great awakening. Uh, we have the apparent materialization of the sacred during trance. We have a pious fraud. We have the idea of automatic writing. Uh, However, no single explanation has to date successfully accounted for the number and the quality of visions in early Mormonism. Uh, nor can these modalities explain the on-demand visions that were neither spontaneous, nor were these the result of prolonged austerities. So to date, up to now, uh, Joseph Smith and the early Mormon converts' visionary experience are neither easily defined nor understood. 
So against this, but notice how many different, and, and they're, they're really, there's like a dozen, perhaps 14, really serious contenders for trying to <clears throat> bring in a, uh, a natural approach to Joseph Smith because the, the literal, uh, I, let's not, let's not use any euphemisms. The literal is very hard to accept. And ironically, <laughs> the literal is involved. I, I know this, this is crazy beans, man. It, it, this is what makes this subject so dadgum much fun as far as I'm concerned to study, right? So uh, now let me read their abstract because their abstract, when I was told by this group, the Mormon esoterica group, uh, that I lectured to in February when I was told, oh no, you're out of date. And I read just the abstract. I said, oh, I got to read this. So I photocopied it off. And uh, this is available online for free. I promise. It is very easy to get. And it is their original article. It is, well, let me, I'm going to hold this up so that you can see it up here. The Journal of Psych psychological studies or whatever the heck it's called. I'm going to hold that to you so you can pause, type in the reference, and there is the title. You might be able to Google search that. I believe I Google searched this and found it that way. Or you can do it by author. Seriously, this is a terrific study. It is without question for the first time in a long time. Now, I enjoyed Bushman, the Rust on Rolling. That was a great expansion of my uh, former kind of rigid, narrow, attempting to keep things within the orthodox trenches, I'll say, of reality when I was an apologist. Bushman really was a good historical expansive analysis, his Rust on Rolling. For that reason, I really rather enjoyed him. Well, this again, this particular article is an extra expansion. Now, a couple of days ago, I did yet another, uh, I did my first actual formal response to Hugh Nibley, which several hundred of you have looked at, on, on my favorite former apologist and on his article, Do Religion and History Conflict? And I tried to describe how Nibley's idea is to uh, separate the world from the prophets and then elevate the prophets and denigrate, downgrade the philosophers and the worldly learning of man. In, in a rough, generalized way, that is what Nibley was doing in that article. And he basically said, the context means everything. But in order to get the full context, we literally do have to go and use all the sources. A virtual impossible task, but that does not excuse us from trying. In other words, no study is ever going to be complete. Therefore, we need to read as many of the studies, the texts, the monographs, whatever, and yet believe none of them is the final word because, of course, they, by force of size, you have to select 
to include some things and select to not include others. That is just the nature of reality. You can't write a book with all of the knowledge of the world in it. It would be trillions of pages. You know, go from here to Mars and back in thickness. Well, most books are not that thick. Books are usually anywhere from 100 to 600 pages thick, right? That means someone's selecting stuff. We all do that, right? So, once again, the apologists will select materials which favor their view. Critics are in the same boat in so many regards that they select uh, information that supports their point of view. And so they're always butting heads. They're always arguing, discussing, etc. This is the essence of being, <laughs> hey, look, look, this is the essence of being finite, man. We can't get out of that at this point because, as I said last time in that last previous video, the whole has a very unusual, interesting thing that occurs as the whole of reality reveals itself at the same time, it is also concealing itself. We only get it, and guess what? Uh, love him or hate him, it's irrelevant. Joseph Smith actually nailed this one on the head. He got it right, and I believe in giving credit where credit's due, sincerely. When he said, it really is a line upon line, precept by precept way that we humans learn, that's no joke. Any of you who are auto mechanics, I promise you didn't one day wake up as a 14-year-old teenager and want to take shop auto in high school and all of a sudden become a mechanic after the first semester. I, I promise, I know you did not do that. Go become a professional mechanic. You took years and years of school, perhaps. Some of you might have just simply learned at your father's mechanic shop, and you went through many, 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 many hundreds, if not thousands of cars with the many, many thousands of problems first step at a time before, you know, you learned how to change a flat tire before you learned how to rebuild a carburetor. I promise you're not going to be able to lie to me and say, no, that's not true. I was a full-blown professional auto mechanic automatically. No. Nobody is. So, so this theme is important. And, so, and the reason I'm making such big hash about this, you guys, is because once again, from my opinion, from my point of view, the apologetic strategy, the, the apologetic method uh, of, of finding materials that, you know, Stephen D. Ricks, I did a video on this also, uh, I, I think it was in my rant video last Sunday uh, where Stephen D. Rick says, we have done everything we can to show that the names in the Book of Mormon are ancient, and therefore these ancient names demonstrate authenticity, and it's up to you critics to show that we are wrong, which I just simply, I don't accept that a lot. I don't give a damn how much work you've done on the Book of Mormon. I don't have to prove anything wrong to you. <laughs> right? The context, again, of the entheogenic materials, uh, 
the evidence now beginning to come out because it was either swept under the rug or ignored in the official Mormon history because it didn't fit the picture of Joseph Smith that the Mormon leaders wanted. So they just simply by emphasizing some aspects and de-emphasizing others through just not even mentioning them, even in print or at a general conference, etc. So nobody's going to really know what you're leaving out any more than they're going to know how much you're including so that we come to a very interesting situation here. Trying, I'm trying my golly gosh darnest to be just realistic here because there's no other reason to be any other way. I'm not trying to convince or convert anybody in any of my videos. I'm just sharing where I'm coming from now and what I'm doing and, and basically what I'm trying to do to overcome my gross ignorance, which I can't totally do, but I can overcome a little bit of it. And I want to share the exciting journey that I'm having with all the rest of you because a lot of you are having this same journey. The idea is none of us are ever going to have the full ability to grasp the full context of who Joseph Smith was through our own studies. The leaders and the apologists, I feel, short-circuit the philosophical way, the uh, what the scholarship way of trying to grasp a more realistic context by the bearing of their testimony. Um, I, I, I called it cheating in my other video. Uh, I, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I mean, I do enough of that and I really shouldn't, but I, it, it's cheating. I, I, I honestly can't see it any other way, you guys. Uh, because when you start to bear your testimony that the Holy Ghost has testified to me that this story is true, that story can't actually give us the full context. I mean, the story of Joseph Smith's first vision would take a missionary if they were trying to do justice to the first vision. If the church itself was going to try to do actual justice to all of the information, not only in all the various uh, accounts of the first vision, but try to give the the uh, the spiritual intent, the spiritual meaning, Joseph Smith's understanding of its significance, the early Mormon followers of Joseph Smith and their understanding of the significance of this first vision, the the relationship of the first vision with the with the priesthood, with the Book of Mormon, with you know all kinds of so with all of the other later visions that ended up being correct doctrines that were published in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know. If we were to try to do justice to the full first vision, missionaries would be spending six to 12 months, four hours a day talking about it to their investigators. And that's just one item, the first vision. That's just not even feasible, right? So we know every, look, every article, every book, Every monograph, every talk given, me tonight, 
I can't give you the full extent of the first vision, nor do I want to tonight because I have this new entheogenic approach that I want to share with you on this first vision. But nobody's ever going to be able to give you the full context. It's not because somebody's trying to cheat. It's not because, now it can be because someone is trying to lead you into a specific belief of the first vision, which is what I think Mormonism does. Yeah. And, and so they're going to leave out you know, the more controversial stuff. And there is tonight is going to share some serious controversial materials on this first vision. Uh, and, and I don't think the Mormon church is going to like it. Um, I, I don't think the apologists are going to like it. I'm not trying to be disparaging whatsoever, though. The whole philosophical context is the first vision is not made up. I now think it really did happen. Just like Joseph Smith said, when we put all of the accounts together, I agree. I agree that, uh, he did write down different versions of the first vision on different occasions and at different times, which in some cases was trying to help him, whether politically or economically, or he was in such a, a controversial time with the Kirtland era and the Kirtland bank fiasco and the ridiculous, stupid way he handled that. And, and, and then through the process of translating uh, the Egyptian papyri, and then he brought in the attempt to learn Hebrew on that also. And then he writes down this first vision because so many people, and I'm going to say this, might be controversial to some Mormons, but rightfully were so angry with the prophet that they did leave him. And yes, they wanted to beat the living snot out of him and tar and feather him at a minimum because they lost everything through this scoundrel, through his scandalous handling of a bank that he had absolutely no business involving himself with. And the people that he surrounded himself with ended up being some of the most heinous perpetrators of crimes besides his ridiculous stupidity. So it was an ugly situation in Kirtland, man. It just, it was brutal. Well, of course the Mormon church downplays that also. However, what we know about it is the, first vision, once we amass all of the group, once we amass all of the different accounts together, let's, for the time being, just to appreciate this extra expansion. For now, let's just forget about the scandal, the scoundrelness of the various versions of the first vision for right now. Yes, we get it. We know he, he was, he was less than honest in some of those and some of the reasons 
why he wrote them to a select audience, because he was attempting to persuade people to believe something about him that may not have been factually accurate or true. Okay, we grant all of that. Uh, we, I, I get it. Yes. In fact, I advocate studying that. Let's throw all that to the side for, for tonight. Because this is a significant expanding of what I now see as an actual real experience Joseph Smith, in point of fact, realistically had. And he wasn't just conning people about it, but it was the way he went about the secrecy at first, 12 years, or is it 14, something like that, before he told anybody, hardly. Yeah, he told the minister and he got ridiculed and all that. We, we understand that. But really, truly, most of the Mormons had never heard about any of this for a long time until after. What they knew about was the Book of Mormon. And, and it surprised a lot of the early brethren when, what? You saw God and Jesus in a first vision? What? This is the first time we're here. We've been in the church for eight years and you've never talked about this. And sure, he was trying to re-enhance, he was trying to reinforce and re-enhance his prophetic authority. I get all of that. Let's put all that to the side for tonight so that we can study this from the hallucinogenic end of things, because this makes very interesting sense that other explanations don't include. And, and that's why this study turned me on. So let me read the abstract. Historical documents relating to early Mormonism suggests that Joseph Smith employed entheogenic-infused sacraments to fulfill his promise that every Mormon convert would experience visions of God and spiritual ecstasies. And the interesting thing, now again, in light with this entheogenic study, they actually did. Now, it's one thing for Joseph Smith to say, hey, look, I've had these visions these magnificent visitations of heavenly beings, etc. And so can you. But they're not going to fake that experience just to please Joseph Smith because their neighbors were persecuting him. They were losing tens of thousands of dollars of property being chased from city to city. Joseph Smith kept putting their sorry, lazy butts to work, building all kinds of cities. Yeah. Well, someone's not going to fake the fulfillment of the promise of this kind of visions unless they too had them. And they weren't faking it. Now, now this brings in, this is crazy, I know. It sounds like I'm defending it. In a way, I am, because historically, this now, this particular explanation, the antheogenic, the hallucinogenics, now actually begins to make much better sense, not only of Joseph Smith and early Mormonism, but of the fact that so vastly many of his followers also had those experiences 
which didn't happen in any of the other churches around him. So what the hell is going on? How did Joseph Smith pull that one off? And the astonishing answer is spiked sacramental bread and wine. Wow. That's a bombshell. Let me keep going. This is what is so fascinating. And it began with his hallucinogenic first vision. Here's the thing that we really need to understand, according to these guys now in this study. The hallucinogenic experience does not make it lesser than reality. Because everything that happens in our brains is chemistry. Uh, our own morality, um, our ability to interact with others, dreaming, etc. It really does all happen in our brains. Just because our brains are enhanced with drugs doesn't mean that it's a less than real experience. And let me that this is the other aspect of this that I want to read about their analysis of that, that really surprised me. I said, aha, I see a new light here. Very credible, interesting new light. So early Mormon scriptures, oh, here we go. Yes, early Mormon scriptures and Smith's teachings contain descriptions consistent with using entheogenic materials. Compiled descriptions compiled descriptions of Joseph Smith's earliest visions and early Mormon convert visions reveal the internal symptomology, the symptoms, and the outward bodily manifestations. There are certain ways that the human body is going to react when you take, ingest, certain kinds of mushrooms, or else you ingest the ergot-infested rye grains, etc. Your body will do certain things. These are accurately described in early Mormonism when they had their visions and experiences. It's not something you fake. It's something your body and brain and chemistry does when you're under this kind of an influence. Now, this is interesting. Okay, let me keep going. And those outward bodily manifestations consistent with using an anticholinergic entheogen due to embarrassing symptoms that were displayed associated with these manifestations and especially at Kirtland, Smith sought for psychoactives with fewer associated outward manifestations for the later times, such as in Nauvoo, in the temple in Nauvoo. The visionary period of early Mormonism, fueled by entheogens, played a significant role in the spectacular rise of this American-born religion. The death of Joseph Smith marked the end of visionary Mormonism and the 
failure or refusal of his successor to utilize entheogens as a part of religious worship. The implications of an entheogenic origin of Mormonism may contribute to the broader discussion of the major world religions with evidence of entheogen use at their own foundations and illustrate the value of entheogens in religious experience. Two issues. I, I can see I'm going to have to do uh, a part two, and I will certainly try to do a part two, if not tomorrow night, just kind of keep your eye on it if you're interested. But if if not tomorrow night, then I will try to do it on Saturday. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to completely compl go through all of this because there is so many fascinating connections here that I have never, ever, ever imagined. And, and I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a genius. I'm not the most well-read. I'm not the most intelligent or knowledgeable. But I have done my fair share of reading. And this stuff really pulled a lot of questions that I've had together in ways that nothing else has. I straight out, that's part of my uh, that's part of my enthusiasm for this particular study. Uh, the lights turned on. I go, oh, oh, that's why that happened. Or else, oh, oh, that's why that didn't happen. I love studies that do that for me. This one did that. I had many aha insights with this study. And I think you will too. So, so that's the basis of their study. Now, um, let me say the uh, yeah, and and I've I've gone through that. Okay, here is what the converts described. Okay, converts who reported angelic visitations, ecstasies, and visions of God in 19th century. Mormonism regarded their experiences as veridical and not as imaginary constructs of the mind. Now, the 19th century publication, The Essential Guide to Datura, describes the subjective visionary experience of Datura intoxication as widely perceived to be real. In reviewing firsthand reports of early Mormon visionary experience, we find overlap of these with contemporary accounts of visions facil facilitated by entheogenic substances and with known symptoms associated when people used the entheogens, the mushrooms, the ergot, etc., so defenders and critics of Mormonism may misunderstand this paper's thesis as questioning the validity of Mormonism's founding visionary experiences. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is part of the new light, I must confess, shocked me the most, is because they actually convinced me too. And I've been pretty stiff skeptical, but now a new uh, uh now let's say a new how do i put this a new aspect of reality in early mormonism kind of woke up to me that i've never seen explained by any of the church leaders or the church apologists 
and I can appreciate Joseph Smith to a greater extent. Not that I accept and wish to practice all of his doctrinal ridiculousness. One does not have to do that in order to say Joseph Smith actually did have these experiences. But just because he did doesn't mean we have to. And it doesn't mean that modern Mormonism today has these experiences, because I've got news for you. Nobody since Joseph Smith Day has been this way. You know why? Because they quit using entheogenic substances. I, I mean, it's that simple. I have actually wondered that. Where did all the gifts of the Spirit go? You know, the, the, the one article in the Anson, uh, can't remember who did it, demonstrated that there were like 38 different known biblical personalities and religious people from antiquity that visited Joseph Smith. 38 of them. You know, Moses, Elijah, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Adam, Eve, the serpent, etc. Nobody else had anything like that. Why was it so absolutely lopsidedly, overwhelmingly available to Joseph Smith, and then all of a sudden, nothing, just dark. Everybody was cruising on Joseph Smith's experience. Everybody was cruising, coasting, as it were, on Joseph Smith's doctrinal knowledge and understanding and interpretation. Yeah, they love to say, well, we're living prophets too, just like Joseph Smith. No, they aren't. None of them even approaches Joseph Smith's stature as visionaries or any of the early Mormon converts. The early Mormon converts, you guys, had vastly more visions and spiritual experiences and visitations and powers than any of the following prophets. Prophets after Joseph Smith. That's pretty amazing. And it's all based because of the use of entheogenic substances. According to this study, to me, that begins to open up some light, a, a better understanding that answers very uh, difficult questions that I've had my whole life on this subject. It's fun to learn, I always say. Praise to the man who communed with Amanita Muscara, right? And here they describe all human experience and insight emerged in the chemistry of the brain, including the achievements of mathematics, science, epistemology, and even morality, to explore how brain chemistry was involved in Joseph Smith's religious experiences and those of other early Mormon believers, and whether entheogens facilitated those experiences, is not to question the spiritual validity and power of those experiences. But what this does now is it illuminates how such compelling experiences were accessed then and draw implications for how they may be accessed now. 
if the preponderance of evidence leads to the conclusions that entheogens facilitated, that is, helped out, many of Joseph Smith's visionary experiences and those of many of the early Mormon converts, then another oddity of the rise of Mormonism is finally explainable, the dramatic decline in reported visionary experience after Joseph Smith's death. I actually think that's one of the most powerful explanations I have ever read for that decline, is what these gentlemen say in this paper. And that was partly what got me actually rather excited. One, it historically actually makes phenomenal sense. Historically and actually directly physically. Because there are physical changes. Now, this is just based on what I've read. And I've read a lot of Carl Ruck and Brian Murarescu and Peter Kingsley also, who conclude that the entheogenic use, this is the book I talked about in the uh, uh, Mormon Esoterica group back in uh, February, on Mithraism and the mushrooms and how these tamed European civilization. Very interesting. So I've read a lot of Carl Ruck. I've read a lot of, of Brian Moresco and all that. The theme is they had these vast experience, you know, the miracles in the Bible, the Eucharist of Jesus. Some of Jesus's teachings are shockingly obvious once we begin to recognize what are the symptoms of using this stuff based on past descriptions and everything matches what Joseph Smith said about his visions. It's not something you can fake because there were other witnesses with Joseph Smith in Kirtland and in Nauvoo, right? He didn't do this just by himself. And their experiences were also gone through together in small groups with Joseph Smith after he promised them, he said, okay, now we have to prepare and then you will see visions just like I do. And the thing is, they did. But they also went through the same bodily experiences that people all throughout history and descriptive of those experiences also went through. It's not something they would fake. It's not something they would fake. And it's not something that they could technically because they didn't realize that they were drinking, quote, spiked sacrament wine. They didn't realize they were consuming, quote, spiked sacrament bread. And in the temples, Kirtland, Nauvoo, and in some of the very special personal meetings, the School of the Prophets, where he had a small group of people and all, Joseph Smith systematically always gave him the sacrament first. Did you know that? See, it's fun little things like that that just turn me on to studying uh, 
Another angle that has been left out of the, quote, orthodox view, again, this reinforces just for me now, this is just my view, you're welcome to accept or disagree. I could care less. It's all right. We can have a discussion on it. I'm not here to try to convince you or convert you, but this also brings out the point of view that I I just don't have any reason anymore to accept the orthodox point of view and that it is that particular chosen uh, selective view that the Holy Ghost is then going to come and bear testimony of. See, that that has no stick to it anymore, to me. I just, oh, wow, yeah, that's nice. Holy Ghost told you that, yay for you. <laughs> so will you believe and come and rejoin the church? <laughs> Hell no. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you can have your Holy Ghost. It's all good. I, I, I'm not your enemy, but. No, your testimony doesn't work anymore. Now, see, this is another one of the brainwashes, yeah. See, who among us was not told? I ask you in all sobriety here, sobriety. <laughs> who among us has not been told? Oh, well, you know, if you're trying to help along a, uh, uh, a particular family member or a real good dear friend or whatever, and, and you're just having trouble... Uh, convincing them that, that the church is true and that the blessings of the priesthood will, will last through eternity with them and all that. What you need to do, what really does help, what really touches their heart and convinces them is when you bear your testimony. And so the final chunk, the final PowerPoint that the church has always brainwashed us into believing, and I won't say taught us because it is a brainwash. Uh, amazingly, it's now obvious to me, but I couldn't see it as an apologist. I'm just so not kidding. But the final brainwash was, oh, always bear your testimony. That is the single most effective thing you can do in order to share love to your loved ones, your family, your friends, etc., and to convince them to come and join the church. That worked for a while because they narrowed down the context, right? Into a into a picture of view that they themselves wanted you to accept and then get the Holy Ghost. And they described how the Holy Ghost works. Amazingly, Joseph Smith's description of how the Holy Ghost works is not the same as today's Mormonism, and the symptoms of the Holy Ghosts which Joseph Smith taught are the symptoms people have on entheogenic materials. And it's in this study. I probably won't get that far tonight. That was another one that I went, oh, just wow. Yeah, that really, that blew the lid off it for me also. I said, wait, this is getting really, really good. The, the description of the effect of the Holy Ghost on people has been slowly dumbed down right up to today. In Joseph Smith's day, it was a pretty 
doggone phenomenal grand conception. And the crazy thing is, <laughs> everybody that he promised that effect of the Holy Ghost to them, when they were with him in the sacred times and in the sacred places, you know, the temples, the special meetings in the upper room of the Joseph Smith store, etc., when he only had a small group, eight to 12 men. Sometimes he had 20, etc. But every time he promised them that, they got it. But he gave them the sacrament first. Man, that's a key pattern. That that is a key pattern, you guys. I can't that can't be overemphasized. When these guys show that like a gong bell, I go, oh, 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 wow. Yes, of course. But it's not something Mormonism ever taught you. Sunday school, sacred meeting, or priesthood meeting, or relief society, or general conference, or in the ensign, the children's friend, or the improvement era, or the new era. They never taught us this. But now the evidence is coming out. Really fun stuff. I really am just giving a, I really am just giving a general overview, aren't I? Man, I'm hardly getting to anywhere. I may have to make this a three-part series because this is good enough. I really do want to cover the whole ground here. Um, sincerely, I think, I think tonight what I'll do is I'll call this the introduction. I will bring us up to the first vision tonight. And then either tomorrow night or sometime Saturday. And I apologize. I don't know when, what time Saturday. Maybe I can do a three or four part and do do um, a uh, a Saturday. Hey, maybe I could do a Saturday session or two. And then a Sunday morning, Sunday school at 10 and then finish it off Sunday night fireside. Ah, that is what I'll try to do. That is how I'll try to do this because there's so much good here that just opened my, my understanding. Um, to me, that was just really exciting. And none of the, none of the history books, even Richard Bushman, the rust on rolling, he doesn't have this context, this full context. No, of course not. Of course, you know, like we all are aware, <laughs> we know dang good and well, <laughs> 30, 40 years ago, man, if you even mentioned Joseph Smith had a swig of beer or wine, you'd get excommunicated. See, this, this desire to build an image after your own biases of what you think holy means is the entire problem with Mormonism. That's why they are failing because they built up this false idol and it's obviously false. So with the actual new uh, historical context, it is actually much more exciting. It is absolutely much more enlightening. And yes, just, I'm going to say this, just, just work with me here. It is more spiritually fulfilling, not because we have to be Mormon, not because we have to believe Joseph Smith's a true prophet, but because 
the experiences that he is describing are actually very real. They were also described by his early Mormon converts, and they are continually being described all the way up to today by users of the entheogenic substances. Those have never gone away. There is a decided pattern and Joseph Smith's descriptions and the early Mormon converts' descriptions of his promises of their experiences, those all match the entheogenic mushrooms, the ergot, the, the symptoms, the, the conclusions that they arrive at. Why? Now, look. I don't care who you are. My suspicion is, now I'm going to kind of guess here, but let, let's be realistic again. And this was poo-pooed by Mormon leaders to us as youth, all of you. It was poo-pooed as missionaries. Why didn't I have those magnificent visions? Like Joseph Smith did. How about Orson Pratt and Parley P. Pratt and, and Wilford Woodruff? Why, why don't I get those same experiences to the answers to my prayers like they did. And then comes the old canard full of bullshit stuff modern Mormons teach. Oh, well, you're not worthy enough. <laughs> Screw that. Look, I, I'm telling you straight on the level with you. That kind of guiltifying and denigrating you, your spirituality, etc., your worthiness. I'm sincerely, the easiest way I can say this is just throw that out. That is today's view in order to control you, to keep you going to their stupid, worthless, boring uh, church. <laughs> and it is a placebo. It's not the real thing. I mean, the difference between today's Mormonism and Joseph Smith's, look, we're talking the difference between night and day. Uh, and so that question went, well, you have to pray harder. <laughs> Joseph Smith never taught that. Joseph Smith never had to teach that. There's not once in his discourses, except with Martin Harris, as one of the witnesses to the plates. I'll take that back. Martin Harris didn't have the vision, and then he ran off by himself. And then Joseph Smith went after him after the other two witnesses had their... Dan Vogel, very good, describes that in his... Uh, that's, I think, in Brent Metcalf's book that Brent Metcalf edited, uh, The Witnesses. Dan Vogel's analysis of The Witnesses is absolutely superb. You've got to read that. Joseph never went around telling people that... Uh, that uh, they lacked the capability or that, well, it's really not necessary to have that much of a vision, just have the burning in your bosom. Joseph Smith didn't say that. He told these people, he said, hey, if you'll come to the Kirtland Temple on so-and-so a day and a night, we will yell the Hosanna shout. We will partake of the sacrament of the Lord. We will study the scriptures and we will get visions. We will have, we will have ascensions 
to heaven. And by gosh, they did. And they said so. You're not going to hear Mormon leaders tell us that today. You go get your temple endowment, and you genuinely will have your ascension to heaven. None of us have had that. None of us. Of course not. The temple endowment today is a placebo compared to Joseph Smith's. Do you want to know why? Because he began the endowment imitating Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil by a sacramental ingestation. And then he went through the fall the Savior, the creation, and the celestial ascent. But when these early Mormons got to that celestial room, it wasn't just in the temple. It was really their celestial ascent. They saw Jesus, and they saw God, and they talked with Elijah, etc., and they all said so. Well, of course, the critics thought they were a bunch of Looney Tune nut jobs. We have a bad habit of denigrating other people's spirituality because it doesn't match what we expect. We are so normally blasé convinced that our placebo spirituality that we live today is the natural reality, that when the higher reality of the brain opening up to a greater inclusion of far more vibrations than we normally have, when they have their actual ascension to heaven, they're arrested for being dopeheads. Now, granted, there's bad drugs out there. I'm not talking LSD and all that stupid crap. I'm not talking about the synthetics, and I damn sure I'm not talking about the pharmaceutical opioids. That's not what Joseph Smith meant when he was talking about the special herbs in the word of wisdom, which were to be used which would make you wise and give you wisdom and the knowledge of the mysteries. That's in section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants. You don't believe me? Go reread it. It shocked me how these guys bring that out. I go, wait a minute. Yeah, he forbade alcohol and all that, but he never did herbs. The herbs that Emma herself was utilizing, along with Lucy, his mom, were some of the herbs from the ground that were hallucinogenic. No kidding, man. Avery and Tippett's in that book, more Emma Hale, Mormon Enigma, they describe that. These guys talk about that. So I'm kind of giving you, I'm kind of shotgunning this, jumping from subject to subject, just to give you 
to pique your interest. I know I promised you I'm going to tell you about the first vision. And unfortunately, I've been BSing this whole time. I apologize. I'm trying to lay the groundwork because this is so exciting and it's so interesting to me. It's so interesting to me because of the comparison between today and Joseph Smith's day. And I'm discovering that it's not so much that Joseph Smith was a charlatan faking all of this religiosity, all of these visions. No wonder it gave him charisma. That's one of the symptoms of a shaman who gets high on mushrooms and has his vision of God in his ascension. Were you aware of that? Truly. No wonder he had so much charisma and everybody since him has been dull boys like Jack because all work and no play makes the prophets very dull boys. Well, yeah, Joseph Smith was playing. He was known as what? The cheerful prophet. These hallucinogenics give you a broader aspect of reality and it gives you a far greater depth of love and happiness. They did in Joseph Smith's day describe these and prescribe these to get you off of your depression also. Did you know that one of the great naturalists in Joseph Smith's day who was using the hallucinogenics as a physician was none other than his very dear and good friend and scribe of the papyri, Frederick G. Williams? Ma'am, I had never heard that before. These guys have a whole section on Frederick G. Williams that I'm so excited to share with you when I get to that point. Yeah, the Frederick G. Williams. Amazing. You know, all of these little things start coming together and you go, holy Toledo. I don't know anything about early Mormonism. I thought I did, but I don't. Now, D. Michael Quinn, yeah, the early Mormonism and the magic worldview. Now, he filled in a whole bunch of stuff. I agree. Magnificent stuff. But but these guys really add another, they're filling in all the seams in ways that just, wow, gives you a real good, uh, a, a more full picture. So I, I am excited. I apologize for not giving you the first vision. I, I said I was going to, and I didn't. So I blew it. I, I muffed it. You know, throw me off the cliff. That's the way it is. I'll drink to uh, doing this another time. Seriously, I think I'm going to try like crazy to, uh, uh, I will try to do, truly, I will try to do at least one good long session on Saturday. Uh, I, and sincerely, I don't know what time. I, I'm not sure. It depends on how much I need to get done in other things because I only have the weekends because I work during the week, right? So I will try like crazy to get on on Saturday. And, and I'm not trying to be a weenie and a weasel here to try to get you to watch your computer all day and day just to listen to this idiot. You don't have to catch me on the live session because these are recorded, right? But I will do a session on Saturday. And it, sincerely, it really could be like a three-hour session. I'm not kidding. And then I, I will continue it on on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in my Sunday school. And then, now, now, oh, man, you guys. Okay, Sunday morning, I'm going to say at 10. I promise I'll try to get here at 10. 
you know, if it's between 10 and 11, please forgive me. I'm not trying to goof your, your schedule up. I'm not trying to be rude, but uh, between 10 and 11, I'll say, and then Sunday night at six, uh, I will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Saturday, I'll do a session uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night. And we'll do this in a, in a four-part series because there's so much cool stuff. You guys, there's, it explains Joseph Smith and his relationships to the Indians like I've never seen. Absolutely fantastic. There is an explanation of a seer stone in here that will just curl your hair. It's fantastic. It's not anything you've ever learned in church. And yet it really actually fits the actual evidence. It, it just does. That's how it is. So it, it'll help us appreciate uh, the actual culture of early Mormonism in, in, a, in a better degree without having to say, ah, oh, I assent to that and I believe in that. You don't have to. But it does help you see a new light that is so encouraging, is so interesting, at least for me, that it does give me joy. And I love sharing the extra knowledge because now Joseph Smith doesn't quite seem to be, to me, such an untouchable enigma. He, he appears to me to be more realistically an actual human after all. The mythologization that has happened to Joseph Smith from the time he died is it's unfortunate because it distorts the reality to where it really does make Joseph Smith appear to be 100% pure charlatan. I don't buy that anymore. But I also don't buy that he was 100% pure prophet, <laughs> not by a long shot. But there is a more realistic aspect that makes better historical sense, better doctrinal sense, better psychological sense. His response to certain situations that have always puzzled me, why did he do that? Why on earth did he go there? What did he mean by saying that, etc.? All of those really just tough questions are answered in this approach. And it's amazing. I personally really like it um, because I'll tell you why I like it. I no longer feel guilty for not accepting today's Mormonism's Joseph Smith because their Joseph Smith isn't the right one. I actually genuinely no longer feel guilty and unworthy and uh, in needing to repent. I've wounded the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to leave you and you'll be left to the buffetings of Satan. I no longer believe any of that because the Jesus these guys have and what Jesus wants for us that today's church teaches is not the same as what Joseph Smith taught. So I genuinely feel that being worthy or unworthy has nothing to do with our personal value.
I don't need to see a church leader in order to properly repent. That's irrelevant. What this does, get this, and, and this is again such a deep irony, because I am not advocating the use of drugs. No one in Mormon Discussion, Inc. is advocating the use of drugs. Get that right. If you choose to, great, that's fine. But we are not saying you have to. But because he was involved in antheogenic substances in sacramental settings, in a spiritual space, Joseph Smith, his approach to deity, his doctrinal understanding was that we could become one with deity, not that we were unworthy to, or that we had to go through this and this and this type of repentance. We had to spend six weeks doing this, then we had to spend another eight weeks not doing that. And then you have to spend not just 15 minutes, but you've got to spend an hour a day reading your scriptures, but not just any of the scriptures that you want to read. We will tell you which scriptures to read, and you can start with Spencer W. Kimball's The Miracle of Forgiveness. I mean, all of that hokey bullshit you can toss right out the window. Because Joseph Smith taught none of that. He said, look, the critical thing is, have the experience of God. Have the experience of God. And then he paved the way for it through the sacramental means. This is really an eye-opener, personally for me. That's what I love about this article. So I am very excited. I, I, only, got, <laughs> I only got the page two of about a 30-page article tonight. And I haven't shut up for an hour and a half. I apologize. No, I will. I will try to. I will try to stick more with the article. The nice thing is, hey, uh, I have tomorrow. Uh, I have tomorrow night again to reread through this so that I can kind of get a little bit more focus. I'll do a little bit more tighter focus uh, and share these these uh, themes with you. I'm going to fold down page two right there so that I don't lose my place. Yeah, man. Uh, I would just like to bear my testimony tonight that I know you don't have to go through the bullshit of modern Mormonism to be worthy of anything. Because it's not about being worthy. See, that is part of the skewed process which Joseph Smith never bothered with. He really didn't. He said, he said, I don't give a damn what you think or believe. He said, I don't care what you believe. You don't have to believe what I believe, you guys. You don't, you, I'm not going to doctrinally censor you because I want to be free to believe whatever the living hell I want to believe. That's Joseph Smith, you guys. And he told everyone around him. He said, oh, for Pete's sake, don't stop coming around and associating with us just because you have a different belief than the rest of us and you're afraid we're going to mock you or ridicule you. He actually 
really put the brethren down. The apostles one time, when old brother Miller or brother Brown or something uh, was giving a, an interpretation of the beast of Revelation, and they were getting ready to kick him out of the church, man. And Joseph Smith said, over my dead body, there is no way in hell anyone's going to be excommunicated from the church simply because you have a different belief. Don't be so damn stupid, myopic, and simple-minded. There's no way. I want the liberty to believe as I wish. I want the liberty to believe what I will. Joseph Smith didn't focus on belief as a basis of worthiness, you guys. He focused on experience. And then he helped them get that same experience he had. Now, today's church, oh, no, <laughs> not a chance. They don't come anywhere close to doing that. Nowhere close. What is the last three or four talks of Russell M. Nelson been all about? Stay on the covenant path and believe. You have to believe. They no longer even teach what Joseph Smith did, and nor can they demonstrate and promise to you to have those experiences like Joseph Smith did because they're not the same thing at all. These guys are bureaucrats. I mean, Nibley years ago, I believe 1985, gave that commencement speech, leaders versus managers, and he showed the true powerful spirituality of what actual leadership is, and the dinglings in Salt Lake City chose the management angle, and now they've made a few hundred billion bucks, but nobody wants to go to their church anymore <laughs> or give them any more money. So, yes, celestial glory is all for them, 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 all alone. Who gives a flying flip? Let them have it. Who cares? Because we've got something vastly superior to true belief. We've got a realistic aspect of experience. And that's vastly superior. So... That's the fun of all this kind of stuff. I get carried away with, see, and again, see, am I just being biased? Am I being closed-minded and being being uh, prejudiced for what I like, for what I believe? Because this is really close in so many regards to how Alan Watts interprets Hinduism, Vedanta. Uh, this is really fascinating, you know. I have to ask myself sometimes, you know, um, how uh, it's it's just really is, and of course Joseph Smith has some really weird <laughs> doctrinal twists, you know. <laughs> Make no mistake about it; some of his doctrinal twists. <laughs> Wow. You go, okay, Joe, that was a foul ball. That was not a home run. <laughs> Sorry, you hit the ball on the top and it went that way, way out of bounds, doctrinally. Some of his home runs, though, are really spectacular. Like I say, I give credit where credit's due. There's no reason. It, it's not even realistic to try to denigrate absolutely everything Joseph Smith said and did. That's just being hopelessly silly 
also, as well as mythologizing into a god by the time he was born, and he was a god throughout his whole life, like Mormons today do. You know, praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. God, those old high priests love to put their whole heart and soul into that. And yet they won't sing, I know that my Redeemer lives with any kind of emotion whatsoever. It just almost puts you to freaking sleep. So, you know, everyone, everybody has their focus. And wow, I, I just, I don't find modern Mormons uh, focus on the prosperity gospel um, all that exciting myself. So. But I find a lot of stuff Alan Watts says kind of matches with this entheogenic stuff. And again, man, that surprises me too. Okay, so here's the plan. Here's the plan, you wonderful people. Um, I am going to show up Saturday. And again, I, I apologize for not knowing when. And then again, Sunday morning, between 10 and 11, I'll say. Uh, I mean, it might be noon too. I don't know. I, I, I will try. But Sunday night for sure at six. Uh, I've got quite a bit going on this weekend. So, But three more sessions on this subject. And I so promise uh, you won't regret it. I, I mean, you're in for some real eye-opening cool stuff. Really, seriously. So anyway, I I am going to call it good. I, I've been here an hour and a half, and you wonderful people have been here for an hour and a half. I haven't had a chance to 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 say hi to all. It looks like Doug Vincent is here. Jarvis is my co-pilot. RFM, welcome, my dear friend. Yes, George Robson, Vega Dog. Yeah, the dog. And Lorena Cornell is here. Uh, and Debbie Joe, I've said hi to you. And Obadiah Bumbley, thank you. And Richard Petchak. And Patty Cake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and Golden Thrasher, hit the like button, my fellow true seekers. Yes, you wonderful people, hit the like button if you would. I'm not supposed to say that. That comes across as vain. I, I don't care if you like me or not. I'm going to keep talking and sharing good crap with you. <laughs> That's how it works. Who else is here? Oh, uh, George Robson. Yes, I think I said hi to you. Uh, let me see. Oh, Wesley Jones. Yeah, Michael Ray. Welcome. Welcome. Estevo Mac. El Sorry, my glasses don't work anymore either. Neither do my eyes. Anyway, Estevo Mac, welcome. Uh, a Mr. Natural. Hey, hey, buddy. Well, it's good to see. I see a couple of uh I see a couple of new names and and uh, some ideas. Heather, welcome. Scott, welcome. Uh So anyway, uh thank you all for coming on. I will uh Pamela Marek, Samuel the Lamanite, Jarvis is my co-pilot. I think I've said hi to you already. So I'm very grateful for all of you guys. You're always wonderful. I love this audience, man. I can't help it. I, I love absolutely everybody who joins us. Don't ever discourage them from joining us. It doesn't matter if they believe like we do or whatever. It doesn't matter if they keep telling you in the chat, oh, I'm wrong. I'm an apostate. The Holy Ghost is left. So uh, everybody's welcome to their opinion. It's all good. I don't mind. Oh, TM. Hey, good to see you. Anyway, I'm just zipping through here. Oh, Pamela Merrick. I don't know if I said hi to you. Anyway, that's one of my habits. I love to say hi to the audience just to acknowledge you and say you're on. Oh, Dan Vogel. <laughs> yeah. 
George Robson, good to see you. Anyway, a lot more fun coming up. Uh, I will I will plan on seeing you guys on Saturday and twice on Sunday. Between 10 and noon Sunday morning and Sunday night at 6 o'clock. So be good, do well, have fun. Stay tuned. Have a great day tomorrow. Wrapping up the week so that we can all go enjoy the weekend. And I really hope you all have a great weekend as well. So I will see you then. I'm going to head out. You guys have a great night for the rest of the night. Thanks for showing up and sharing an hour and a half with me. I appreciate it.